Tonight on Farage, after Liz Truss takes questions from members of the public, we'll ask, does she look like a Prime Minister? I'll be talking to Alistair Stewart, the ringmaster for the debate, Trevor Kavanagh, to ask him, after all his years of experience, does he think she looks like a Prime Minister? Weatherman John Hammond joins me to talk about droughts and Thames Water leaking 24% of their water. And on Talking Pints, I'll be joined by Mike Porky Parry. Tonight, it was the People's Forum. Yes, a chance for ordinary members of the public, not just Conservative voters, not just Conservative members, to put questions to Liz Truss. It was held in Lee, in the northwest of the country. The whole thing was chaired by the ringmaster, Alistair Stewart. And it was interesting because there were some really good, tough questions. Pakistani grooming gangs, what was happening in the English Channel. There was some really good stuff that was debated tonight. I have to say that Liz Truss kept her composure throughout. Of that, there is no doubt. She didn't get rattled at any point during it. But when it came to substance, I must say, I've got a few questions. To begin with, she was asked about the European Union, about all the EU laws that are still on our statute book and what she would do about it. Her answer was astonishing. So what I will do is I will get all of the EU laws off the statute books by the end of 2023, and I will replace them with much better laws here in Britain. Well, I don't know. I mean, unless Parliament sits 24 hours a day, 365 days a year, it would be impossible to get all those laws off the statute book by the end of 2023. After all, we were in the thing for nearly 50 years. But, I guess, as somebody who was a Remainer, at least she's showing intent. I think her biggest weakness, and where she had a real opportunity tonight to genuinely put herself apart from Rishi Sunak, because remember, this contest has been dominated utterly dominated by tax and spend, and there have been a variety of U-turns performed by both candidates. But the one issue that is very, very high up in the minds of Conservative voters, and particularly in the Red Wall, is this question of what's going on in the English Channel. What will the government do to stop it? And she was asked a very direct question. Firstly, would she support turning the boats around and towing them back to France? She didn't answer that. But on the crucial question, of the European Court of Human Rights. This is what she had to say. I would do, if I'm elected as your Prime Minister, is make the Rwanda policy work by, through the British Bill of Rights, ensuring that we can't be overruled by the ECHR. Because you know that's been a problem, that we had the yes. ruling from the ECHR and that stopped the policy going ahead. So I would make sure we legislate for Britain that we are in control of our own policy and we can't be overruled by the ECHR. That's pretty much the same thing as Rishi Sunak would say, uh, and it doesn't actually amount to a row of beans, because all the while we're signed up by treaty to the European Court of Human Rights, it will have supremacy over Dominic Raab's proposed British Bill of Rights. And that, I think, was a big disappointment. That was her big moment to set herself apart from Rishi Sunak, and she chose not to take it, which means this crisis will continue. As I said at the start, she was composed throughout. But I sat there and looked at her, and I asked myself, does she look like a Prime Minister? I want to ask you that question. Do you think Liz Truss looks like a Prime Minister? Give me your thoughts. 
farage at gbnews.uk. I have to say, for one, I don't think she does. There are some who say, ah, Mrs Thatcher, when she became leader of the Conservative Party, didn't look like a prime minister. Well, that may be true, but that was in 1975. And by 1979, she did look like a prime minister. And I just have this concern that the Conservative Party members will put somebody into number 10 Downing Street who, frankly, isn't really ready for it. Back to the debate and the way in which it was conducted. And there was one clear winner, one person who stood head and shoulders above everybody else that was in the room. He conducted it all rather like a mathematics master, totally in charge of proceedings. It was, of course, Alistair Stewart, who joins me from Lee down the line right now. Alistair, well done. I have to say, it was really, it was quite spirited at times with the audience, wasn't it? I thought it was, and I thought, as you well know, because we've discussed it many times, we wanted a people's forum. We didn't want a room full of people who are professional interrogators, professional interviewers, sharing too much of what they themselves think about these great issues. And I think we genuinely got that. I thought there was real cut and thrust. I thought two of the questioners who were stand out were the young woman who wanted to know whether uh, it was part of government's responsibility to, to help her raise a deposit because she wanted to get on the housing ladder. Uh, and the young lad who said he wanted action from her to stop her, his unit university lecturers, for whom he pays a lot of money, uh, going on strike. Uh, I thought they genuinely were spirited. I hope and I think that we got the balance right between her giving an answer, them having a comeback and me just occasionally popping in uh, a little bit of clarification. Just one thing from your overall introduction, which I also thought was very interesting uh, on the ECHR. Uh, in all of my research notes, it stands out crystal clear that she has said, rather like Dave Cameron did about Brexit, I'm going to try and negotiate negotiate improvements, but if I can't get them, then we will withdraw from it. I was slightly surprised, like you, uh, that she didn't give that uh, a clear statement of intent right here, right now. We pushed it a couple of times, but we only had an hour. Uh, the other final point I thought, which was intriguing, was she's got Tom Tugendhat and she's got Penny Morden on side. She stretched out the hand of friendship to Kemi Badenoch and said, I hope that Kemi will serve with me uh, in my cabinet if I'm successful. No, absolutely. Alistair, splendid. Well done. Please enjoy the rest of the evening. I know that you will. You did a very, very good job. Yeah, and he really did do a very, very good job. Well, joining me is a Rishi Sunak supporter, Mark Wood MP for Dudley South. And Mike Very Wood, close, Nigel. It's Mike. Do you think... So I, I thought... I said... Sorry, I said it right second time. Mike, did you think that she looked like a Prime Minister? I mean, I I haven't uh, watched this afternoon's forum, I'm afraid. I've been working in the constituency, and clearly I'm not here to criticise other candidates. Um, I you know, like Liz, I admire Liz in many ways. Uh, I just think that uh, Rishi is the stronger candidate to be our next Prime Minister at very challenging times for, obviously, our party, our country, and for that matter, for the world. OK, so you've decided, Mike, not to join in on the blue-on-blue -blue attacks, um, which I know Ben Wallace was urging everybody yesterday to refrain from it. But looking at another 10 MPs who've come out in the last 24 hours for Liz Truss, looking at the polls, and I agree they can often be unreliable, it does look very much like 
Liz Truss is going to win. Do you accept that or do you still believe that Rishi Sunak has a chance? I certainly don't think that's a foregone conclusion, Nigel. I mean, I'm, I'm perhaps you're not quite as cynical as me, but I think you know, whilst we obviously love all of our colleagues dearly, I think some of them may have uh, other other motives perhaps for coming out and backing the person who's currently seen as the heavy favourite rather necessarily who they think would be the best, best leader or prime minister or necessarily who they're actually going to vote for when they return uh, their own uh, ballot paper. Because what we're getting when we're ringing around our members and particularly our councillors, and these are people we know are Conservative Party yeah. members, we know that they have a vote rather than the people who we're talking to uh, some of the opinion poll uh, firms, is that it is very, very close, and there's still a very large number of undecided uh, voters. So I think there's still everything to play for over the next uh, three and a bit uh, three and a bit weeks. And obviously, we're All working right, no, hard to enough. make sure people understand why Rishi should win. Rishi does appear to have done quite a few U-turns during this campaign. Uh, no, I, I don't think that's uh, true. I mean, obviously, there are some some comments that are being compared to what he said in December last year, February this year. And of course, things are different to uh, in many ways to where they were then. And so there are some decisions that have been taken purely because the facts have changed now compared to where we were earlier in the year. But I think Rishi has set out a clear and consistent vision for where he sees the economy, getting control of inflation, because as Margaret Thatcher knew, only when you have sound money and you've uh, got uh, control of prices, they're not spiralling out of control. That's the only way you can get the economy growing. You can bring taxes down and actually allow people to keep more of the money that they've earned. So that if you just try and have large reductions in personal taxation at a time when the economy is already overheating and inflation is already uh, very high, you just see yep. prices spiraling further out of control and it's all wiped out within uh, within months, if not weeks, by, uh, by the reduction in the value of the money people have. Well, we'll see. You're keeping faith with Rishi Sunak's campaign. Mike, thank you very much indeed for joining us. Now, you might have noticed that it's the 10th of August. That's right, the 10th of August. And we've had a whole series of hustings and debates. The ballot papers went out to party members some time ago. But I'm joined by Trevor Kavanagh, associate editor at The Sun. Trevor, we're not going to get a result until the 5th of September. What are they up to? Well, I think, that, and as you know, that's after we know how big the bills are going to be for people to have to pay for their energy in future, something like four to four and a half thousand pounds extra. Frankly, I think this is a dereliction of duty, of national duty. They should either truncate this uh, election campaign, this process, and have the vote this week or next week at the latest, or one of them should pull out. I think the most likely one would be, the preference would be for an early actual vote. So the ballot papers are out there. I mean, presumably, Conservative Central Office will know how many of them have been returned. Um, but I guess once you've set the rules for an election, it's difficult to change them. I don't see why it would be on this occasion. I mean, what we're on the brink of is a national economic emergency, a, a crisis, and possibly even a potential catastrophe. So Gordon Brown giving these dire warnings on Monday of this week was right on that. Yes, I'm not often in the position of backing Gordon Brown, but on this occasion, I think yeah. he's right in that assessment. And he has actually been through the mill himself, so he knows when a, a real emergency is coming. And we're talking about four and a half thousand pounds extra for people 
who simply don't have that sort of money. The problem here is that you have an electorate, 160,000 Conservative Party members, who are basically telegraph readers. And there's nothing wrong with telegraph readers. No. I'm one myself. But we... But comparatively well off, most of them, would you say? Comparatively well off, probably no mortgage to pay. The yes. kids have gone through school. What I'm thinking about is my readers, the sun readers, the people who are on those average earnings and possibly less than the 25, 26, 27,000. That, that's before tax, and suddenly they're out of the taxed version of that, they're having to fork out four and a half thousand pounds. Most of them would be lucky to have savings of 500 pounds. Yeah. And many of them are already in debt on the basis of the electric, electricity bills they're receiving now. Now, this trust tonight completely refused to say we should cut the 5% VAT on people's fuel bills, despite the fact, and one of the questioners said it was a Brexit promise, and it was a Brexit promise. She has said, though, that she would take the green, the, the green levy off people's electricity bills. But we've got this debate going on, haven't we? We've got Liz Truss saying she will cut taxes. We've got Rishi Sunak now saying that perhaps there'll be more handouts. What is the right answer, in your view, given the magnitude of what we face? Well, if the people that I'm speaking to, and people who are speaking publicly anyway, are right in their assessments of what lies ahead. The sort of things they're doing now, offering tax cuts and VAT cuts and green levy cuts, are like sticking plasters on a burst water main. This is really big potatoes. This is something which we've not seen before, not even the oil shock of the 70s or the crash of the 90s or the 2008 uh, financial crisis. We may actually be heading for depression unless we do something truly drastic right now. And in a sense, I would have thought that the person to do that would have been Rishi Sunak because he did it during the uh, COVID yeah. crisis yeah. and he threw money at it. He hurled money at it. And that's what they're going to have to do now. They're going to have to think about the equivalent of wartime crisis measures. And that includes possibly a 30-year bond so that we can simply cut those, uh, cut those uh, energy prices to the point where People aren't going to go hungry or destitute in order to pay them. I think you're right. I think in the end, just cutting a few taxes is not going to cut the mustard. But if they hang on until the 5th of September, and if the preparatory work is not going on between Team Rishi and Team Liz and the Treasury, and I don't think it is, by the time they get into number 10, get ready for a budget, people will have had these bills for a month or so, I mean, aren't they potentially doing themselves enormous electoral damage? I think so, because once, no matter what they throw at it in the way of these tax cuts and so on, there'll be no gratitude for it once this hits properly and hard. Um, the fact that they're getting £400 off their uh, energy bills and £300 off their, or in addition to their winter fuel allowance, all of that will be taken as read. It'll be discounted. It needs to be quite dramatic action. And I don't see how, in fact the Foreign Secretary and the former Chancellor are able to dictate what the Treasury is doing or thinking about right now. And I gather that uh, Kwasi Kwarteng, who's most likely to be the next Chancellor, is drawing up something like an emergency budget. But he doesn't have the wherewithal, he doesn't have the documents as we speak to do that. No. And I think that we have... That's why I'm suggesting yeah. that they no, should I, bring it forward. I completely understand. <clears throat> Otherwise, they're doing themselves huge harm. Liz Truss is the runaway favourite. I mean, Mike Wood there insisting that Richie is still in with a chance. But I think just the mood music we pick up from all around the country uh, says that Liz Truss will win. She's been in Cabinet for eight years. Not made much of an impression with the British public, I don't think, during that time. I'm 
don't want to be unfair, but I think that's a reasonable way of putting it. She was composed, as she's been composed throughout uh, the, you know, the hustings that have gone on. Does she, Trevor, does she look like a prime minister? Frankly, at the end of the hustings, I would say she's more impressive than she was when she started. But that's from a very low base. And, I mean, cometh the hour, cometh the woman, you don't know yep. until the person is actually in situ. Uh, and I desperately hope that she has what it takes, because there's no doubt that she's going to win this now. The momentum is so yep. far behind yep. her that Rishi doesn't have a prayer. He's going through the motions, which is one of the reasons I think we should curtail this. But um, she has been saying some of the right things. And she has been sounding a bit Thatcherite, which is always a good thing, in my view. Well, when you're appealing to 160,000 Thatcherites, I guess that's what you do, isn't it's it? It's a huge asset, yes. But I think your point was that uh, Margaret Thatcher, who was basically just given a run, I remember people saying at the time, let's give this filly a trot. And fortunately, she kept trotting and encountering and got away from them. They couldn't change their minds subsequently as they thought they might. But, by, but my point was, in 75... <clears throat> she had a chance in, as opposition leader. Yeah, that's right. And, and she, she didn't look like a PM when she first took the job, but she did by 79, didn't she? She did. But even in 79, she was still at war with her own party. It wasn't really until a couple of years in that she asserted herself in the way that okay. bore fruit. And Liz Truss simply doesn't have the time. And she's learning on the job, and there's no, there's no time to learn on this particular job. It's going to be very tough, isn't it? Very tough for the Conservatives. And Keir Starmer? Well, that's their greatest asset. I mean, he's the only reason people won't be saying after 12 years of the Conservatives in power, they haven't done a good job, mm. which is the case. But he's not Jeremy Corbyn. He's not Jeremy Corbyn. And, of course, you've got this financial crisis, which will be blamed on the Conservatives who have been in power that long. Yeah. So I think the terrible prospect is that we might see Keir Starmer as our next Prime Minister. Well, Liz Truss went through a pretty tough interrogation from members of the public there. She did keep composed throughout. I'm granting her that. But I asked you the question, does she look like a Prime Minister? I just don't think she does. Trevor Kavanagh doesn't think she does. Of course, We'll find out, I guess, on the 5th of September. I asked you for your thoughts. Jane replied, no, definitely not. She doesn't have a presence in the studio, let alone at PMQs. G7 summits or being generally assertive. It's a no from me. Diana says, yes, she does. Hashtag never Rishi Sunak. I sense, Diana, you are a political activist. Um, but I voted Liz. Fine. Stuart says, do they have to have a certain look? <laughs> I'd let Quasimodo have the job. It's the brain and the ability I'm interested in. Look, I'm not talking about her looks. I'm talking about her demeanour. Does she have authority? When she speaks, do you think she really knows what she's talking about? That is the point that I... I knew I'd get criticised for raising this question. Ian says, looks like Maggie Thatcher, lies like Boris Johnson and waves her hands around like a prima donna. What choice do we have? And finally, Ryan says, she's not very exciting, quite wooden in her answers, so I can see less PMQ debates. I can see PMQ debates being rather dull. However, she's the best of two bad choices. Perhaps with open primaries, the contest would have been more interesting. Well, with open primaries, 
All sorts of people would have been in this race, some possibly even sitting in this chair. But that's another issue. Now, I'm very pleased to be joined by John Hammond, meteorologist at weathertrending.com. Uh, John. Good evening, Nigel. It's a good time to be a weatherman, I guess, really, isn't it? Because it's good for business. Yes, everyone's yeah. talking about it. Yeah, I think there are more people tonight in the pubs talking about the weather than talking about Rishi V. Liz. <laughs> I think you're probably <laughs> I'm right. pretty yes. confident about that. Now, driving in, yeah. driving in today, you know, coming through uh, sort of the outskirts of London, noticing that the horse chestnut trees are... Drooping. Well, actually turning quite brown yeah. in places. Yeah. Quite a few leaves coming down. <clears throat> um... Farmers saying crops are down, etc. It looks and feels a bit like, I mean, I'm old enough, you're probably not. But oh, I am. A bit, I know what you're going to say. <laughs> but it, it does feel and look a bit like 1976, doesn't sure it? Sure does. And I was of an age when, when it was fantastic, you know, sunny, hot days every single day through the summer. I remember bathing in Chichester Harbour and it felt like bath water. Mm. Uh, but on a serious note, yeah, that is always the benchmark, isn't it? Whenever we have yes. a heat wave, whenever we have a drought, we refer it back to 1976. And 76 was a giant anticyclone, wasn't it? It, it was. Uh, it was a freak event, if I can use that term. Um, and because it's, it was so unusual, it stood the test of time. Mm. And so, you know, with every heat wave, we compare it back. And, and few, if any, have actually sort of matched up to 76. This summer is going to be a close call, certainly in terms of heat and drought. And certainly the first six months of this year are comparable with the first six months of 1976, almost as dry. Now, we were in dire trouble then with water, weren't yes. we? Standpipes and all. We're not in, it's not, it, things are not as bad as that. Really good point. And the reason for that, Nigel, was that 76 came off the back of a very hot and sunny 75, actually. 75 was dry. The intervening winter from 75 to 76 was dry. Mm. So already groundwater levels, reservoir levels were very depleted yeah. as we went into the summer of 76. In contrast, this time around, last year actually was a pretty normal year in terms of rainfall. It was a terrible summer, wasn't it, last yeah. year? Yeah. So, so now we had our dose yeah. of wet weather. So yeah. reservoir levels, groundwater levels were actually reasonably high when we went into the spring and summer. So... That's the reason, actually, we haven't had that many hose pipe bans announced yet by the water companies. And actually, I was listening to somebody from Anglia Water a few days ago, and she was pretty laid back about the possibility of having a hose pipe ban through this, okay. through this summer. So she thinks the real concern is next year. If we now go into a dry yeah. autumn and dry winter, then we've got to worry about it. Yes, Hampshire Isle of Wight with hose pipe bans, Kent and Sussex coming in on Friday. Correct. And Thames possibly, hence my comment about the 24% leakages at Thames Water. Which... Although, again, they would argue that there are fewer leakages than there used to be. Yes, no, and they do argue that very, very strongly, but the numbers still look to be quite big. So this current heat wave going to go on for the next four or five days. It's going to be a voyage of discovery. What we think over the next few days is that we'll peak at around 35, 36, 37 on probably Saturday. But in the run-up to that, most of us actually through England and Wales tomorrow and again on Friday and Saturday will be way up into the 30s. Today, as a point of reference, a few places Nigel got up into the low 30s. Most were in the high 20s. It was hot enough. But I think people are going to struggle over the next few days as we go up a notch or two higher. But you say that, John. I mean, you know, OK, 1976, it yep. was extremely hot week after week after week. Yep. But I don't remember anything like we had a few weeks ago. We Basically, we were told for the Monday and Tuesday of that week, don't leave your house. You know, you'll 
you'll die if you go outside. It's all a bit over the top, now, isn't now, it? Nobody said you'll die if you go outside. Well, pretty much. So what, well, uh, I, I'm on record to have said on air that I, you know, that, that there will be a higher level of deaths. Uh, through that hot spell and the records, the ONS stats will come in and, it, and they will show that the deaths went up through that period. And again, through this heatwave period... Uh, Doesn't cold of, kill more people? I, I'm not an expert on the number of people who die from mm. cold as opposed to heat. But, you know, we want to mitigate, we want to reduce the number of deaths yeah. come what may, don't we? Yeah. Which is why the Met Office has issued a, it an just extreme seems a bit, heat warning. It strikes a bit me. It, yeah, a bit alarmist, saying. a bit alarmist. Now, John, yeah. I, I know you're a believer that, you know, that what we're seeing here is climate change. Um, the Earth is warming. It's a symptom of climate yeah, yeah. change. The, the Earth is warming. I buy that. I get that. Whether it's man-made through CO2, there is more open debate. But let me ask you this question. You know, we're being told this warm, dry spell, mm. water levels falling, is part of climate change. I've just come back from America. Yeah. 39 people died in the Midwest last week because of severe flooding. And the New York Times state categorically that because of climate change, rainfall numbers will be higher. Which is it? Bit of both. We're going to get more extreme rainfall events and we're going to get more severe Oh, you severe can't have it both ways. Well, Come on. No, the climate models and actually the climate stats over the last 30 years or so bear that out. So winters are getting wetter, which in one sense is a good thing because mm. it will replenish those groundwater levels and those reservoir levels. And winter rainfall is so important when it comes to situations like this. So it looks like winters are going to get wetter but milder. Summers, there's no actual trend in terms of rainfall, Nigel. But what's happening is we get longer dry spells and then when it does rain, it all comes down at once. So we get severe flooding events even in the summer. So there's no real trend for summer rainfall on average, okay. but there is a trend for winter rainfall. Now, finally, as the weatherman, mm -hmm. I'd like to know what the next month's going to be like, please. Again, a really good question. So this dome of high pressure, which is giving us this heat wave, mm. um, computer models really struggle. They, they tend to sort of prematurely break down these domes and introduce much wetter Atlantic air. They're trying to do it now, so they're hinting that next week will be wetter and cooler. I don't know whether that's going to happen as quickly as the computer models suggest. I think slowly it'll cool down next week. There will be some showers, but we need more than a couple of showers, yeah. Nigel, to solve a drought. So fingers crossed we will see some welcome rain for the farmers, for example, through the latter part of August into September. Whether it'll be enough to stave off concerns about drought next year, We'll see. So basically reasonably good weather? Reasonably good weather. I think it should please most folk, even holidaymakers. A bit of sunshine, a bit of showers through the rest of August. Well, I've got to say, I love the sunshine. I'm having yeah. a great time. John Hammond, thank you, thank you very much indeed for joining us here on GB News. And allied to that, we've been talking about farmers. Now, it is pretty extraordinary. We've seen these protests, as you know, in the Netherlands. Well, the same thing's happening in Ireland. Under the lump sum exit scheme, believe it or not, farmers are being offered up to €5,000. That's about £4,200 for every cow they cull. Yes, that's right. They're being given money to kill their cows because Ireland says too much of its CO2 production and nitrogen production comes from dairy cows. And it hasn't happened here yet, but already we've seen farmers actually being paid to leave the business. I have to say, the idea that we're going to stop producing our own meat because somehow, somewhere, we think that it's a good idea to, 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 to cull cows goes against everything, frankly, that I think I believe in. I don't know about you, I think it's absolutely mad. Right, before the break, a few more thoughts from you at home. Neil says, I was watching Truss. 
very uninspiring. She has not ignited any fire in my belly. As you said, probably the least worst of the two. I think I'll fill my belly with Peroni instead. Seamus says, yes, she does, invoking the spirit of Margaret Thatcher. Neeraj says, no way. Ian says, as much as any opposition politician in Parliament these days. One thought. I said to you earlier this week that I had noticed, certainly in Kent, a spate of Turkish barbers opening. But when you investigate, they're not Turkish barbers. They're Albanian barbers. I genuinely believe this is linked to what is happening in the, in the English Channel. I showed you those TikTok videos last, last week, and we learn that 40% of those that crossed the Channel for a period in July had come from Albania. I am deeply suspicious about all these Turkish barber shops and, and, and their purpose and their function. It seems to me it is possible. I won't go further than that at this stage, but possible that they are being used as centres through which substantial illegal drugs money is laundered. But it's very difficult to find out how many of these shops are springing up, where they're springing up, without writing to every local authority in the country. Am I right in what I'm saying? Are you seeing at home a spate of Turkish, in inverted commas, barber shops? Let me know. If you're seeing this in your area, farage at gbnews.uk. I'd be very, very pleased to get your feedback. Now, sometimes, just sometimes, I question the sanity of the guests that I get on Talking Pints. And before I introduce Mike Porky Parry to you, please have a look at this little exhibition that he made of himself. It has, through YouTube across the globe, actually made him more famous than all of his decades in hard-working, honest journalism. It's completely lunatic, and do not try this at home. But here is the cinnamon test with Mike Parry. Two, one... Mike Parry, welcome to Talking Thank you very much indeed. <laughs> Thank you for the intro. No, well, what it, I mean, it, mm. it has had mm. tens of millions. Hundreds, 300, about 300 million views. About 300 million views around the world since uh, we did it. And <coughs> do you know what? It, it, it nearly never happened. I had a bit of a heart scare a few years well, this ago. This is what I've got to say. I mean, what on earth is a man yeah. who had major heart failure... Yes. ..was at one point even on the heart transplant yes, was, waiting yes. list? Yes, What are you doing that for? Well, it, that was taken in my uh, sister's garden. My nephew, uh, obviously <laughs> my sister's um, uh, son, uh, said this is a big rave gun around the world. Why don't you try it? And the reason it's worked, Nigel, is because I was immediately dismissive of what it was all about. It doesn't bother me. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm tough. Yeah, and I've, I've been trained to take pain and all that kind of stuff. And of course, you know, I looked so foolish when it happened. But 
my nephew was so worried at how convulsed I got, he nearly switched the camera off and came and ran over to help me out. Yeah. Thank God he didn't, because uh, that is... You know, part of my lifelong legacy, really. Yes, but a pretty stupid thing to do for a guy that's well, had serious heart trouble. I feel I've known uh, I've been offered a lot of money and a lot of opportunities to do it again. And, of course, I won't, because yeah. I realise now how dangerous it could be, you know? 20 years ago, you, yeah. had, you had this terrible heart problem. Yes. Where are you now, health-wise? Um, well, I was on the heart transplant list for about seven months. Yeah. And I realised my life was disappearing. I'd lost a couple of jobs on the radio station I worked on on TalkSport. I was the programme director there and I did the morning breakfast show with Alan Brazil. And it all was disappearing. Can't tell anybody, if you want your career to keep going, don't get ill. Because once you do, you're forgotten about. And, and, and I'm not saying that bitterly or, or you know, with regret, but we, we work in fast-moving environments in this industry, the communications industry, yeah. and if you're not communicating, somebody else has to fill in for you. And they might be better than you or they might be pretty good. You get left behind. It's just life. I'm not bitter about it. I came back and, uh, and I rebuilt the career, and now I'm delighted to say I do more in television, sitting yeah. here with you, yeah. and I do in radio. But you've lost weight and you've got yourself... Well, I lost about five stone in the immediate yeah. aftermath of the heart problem, and, and that was one of my problems. I, I was massively overweight. And we led very, very demanding lives. Mr Brazil and I would do a breakfast show from six in the morning till ten in the morning. We'd then jump this into... Was, I mean, this was the famous talk sport. Oh, oh yeah, yeah, and, absolutely. And actually, it was quite revolutionary. It was completely revolutionary, because what I would say we did is we introduced what I'd call tabloid radio. Until we got going, nobody had ever thought to go and invite you know, the chief football writer of the Daily Mail onto radio. And we started that. And now, of course, a lot of those guys in Fleet Street have second careers <clears throat> as pundits in yep. radio and television. We started all that. But we would finish a radio show, jump into a car, go up to Newcastle, do a fans forum in the evening with Peter Beardsley and Newcastle fans. That would finish at one in the morning. Then we'd sort of have a couple, you know, to, well, to, to uh, and then get up again at five o'clock and do it all over again. Yeah, and Alan Brazil you work with. I yes. mean, extraordinary character. Uh, most extraordinary man I've ever met. I mean, more energy than I've ever seen in anybody. I mean, I, I, to, to talk about Al as being indefatigable. Yes. Uh, I think that's the way you pronounce it. Uh, is, is, is the description for Al. Nothing's ever stopped him. He's never troubled the scorer with sleep too much, has he, or anything like that? No, no, no. He, I mean, the, the thing with Al, he just goes on. Al lives his own life, and he is a bon vivant. I used to call him a bon viveur until David Ginola corrected me and said, no, no, Michael, it's not bon viveur, it's bon vivant, OK? I said, right, thank you, David. But Al is the absolute bon vivant. Al can have a few drinks all day, go on air, not sound like he's had a drink, come off, have a few more, and then go to sleep <laughs> and then get back on air the following I've never, I've never genuinely... 25 years I've worked with Al now, I've genuinely never seen him intoxicated, despite his no. reputation for being a, a guy who and, likes a few beers. And sport on the radio, mm. whether it's sports debate... Yes. ...or whether it's the coverage of live sport, mm. Mm. I mean, kind of the BBC letting this all go, aren't they? I mean, well, look, even test cricket, even yeah. test cricket. Yeah. You know, I've been a test match special fan all my life. Exactly. I don't think it's got quite the charm that it used to have. No. And suddenly, a couple of test matches, it's been on TalkSport too. Yeah, exa ex exactly. I mean, the, the, the charming days you were talking about was when the... 
people who were doing the punditry and the commentary were part of the show. Yes. You know, I, I yes. mean, people criticise Gary Lineker all the time and say he gets paid an awful lot of money, but it's really, it's on the pitch. And I think that's true. You, you tune into Premier League football to watch the Premier League footballers, whereas Test Match Cricket you're talking about, yes. it was a show, and it was a beautifully rounded show. Yeah. They used to talk about the lady who sent them the cake and what sort of cake it and was. And the bus going down and, the Harleyford Road and whatever it may be. A, absolutely. Yeah. And, and, and so that was warm, what I'd call warm broadcasting. Yeah. You felt part of it. It was like putting on an overcoat, you know, on a cold day and all that kind of stuff. But the problem, of course, is that the BBC, as you know better than I do, has moved from being something you've got for £149 a year to a tax that you have to pay. And all the massive international communications corporations can outbid you now on anything, yeah. literally anything. Yeah. I, mean, I, my, I love sport. You know that. I love, yeah. I, I love all sports. Yes. I, I kind of follow them all um, as much as I possibly can. Mm. And I, I must say, if I'm in the car on a Saturday yeah. uh, for 10 months of the year, nine, yeah. ten months of the yeah. year, and it gets to five o'clock, mm. I'm straight on to Five Live. Absolutely. I'm straight on to Five Live. Absolutely. You know, James Alexander Gordon well, would have been I your mean, man. You know, but I loved all of that. Yes. You get the music, you get the football scores, yeah. two or three teams you're following. Yeah. You know, you know when it is, yes. and the BBC are giving that up. Are they just handing this to commercial radio? No, what they're doing is somebody else has come in. This, is, this happens all the time in broadcasting now. Somebody else has come in, First thing you have to do, I'll make my mark on this show. I'll make my mark on this station. I'll do something revolutionary. And do you know what a lot of it is all about? It's about I've got to become relevant. The best way you can become relevant when you're running something that's successful is to do nothing and let it keep going. A lot of organisations now have decided to devote a lot of their time and energy into what they call diversity. And I'm all for diversity because I want to make sure that the people I'm broadcasting to are relevant to what I'm saying. I want to make sure that the people around me yep. feel inclusive with me and understand my uh, method of operating and I understand theirs. I want younger people to come in. I want people from, you know, different origins than mine to be working with and me. To reach a bigger, and to reach a bigger audience. And to reach a bigger audience. But that's the crucial point you've just made. It's no good going through that sort of exercise yeah. if all of a sudden the figures, which have been going like that for years, suddenly start going yeah, like that, yeah. because that's not the object yeah. of the exercise. <laughs> Football, you know, Everton man, and, yeah. and you love the game, and you've done, you know hundreds, thousands of hours of commentary on yes, football yes. over the years. I have to say, I was a little bit sceptical yeah. about women's football. Right. Or maybe I was a bit ignorant yep. about women's football. Yep. Wasn't that terrific the other week? It was absolutely fantastic. And they definitely crossed the line there into what I would call now a recognised major sport, you know. And also they managed to overcome a lot of the doubters right near the start, 20 years ago, I used to have conversations with people from Coventry and all that about women's football and, and all that kind of stuff. And I was a sceptic. I, I thought yeah. it'd never catch on. However, what I think we have to understand is that men's football and women's football are different games. Yes. They're, they're different games yes. and, and they're almost different cultures. Because the reason why you get such big crowds at women's finals, largely 80% of it is, is usually female, it's because it's such a wonderful atmosphere. It's, it's such a beautiful place to be. Yeah. It's, it's so embracing to be able to take your children and not feel fear or antagonism, not to hear bad language, mm. because whatever you say about men's football, it is based in tribalism. And that tribalism spills over time and time again. 
to this day, everybody says, oh, we conquered, you know, the hooligan problem. We haven't. We not, haven't. Not at Wembley last July for that Euro uh, final. Uh, yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. And, and, and not when Manchester United's coach turns up at Liverpool or Liverpool's coach yeah. turns up at Manchester yeah. United. Yeah. There's still, you know, missiles and all that kind of yeah. stuff. So, so women's football, and let's embrace it for what it is and, and the, the success it's brought this country. Yeah. It's a different game to men's football. And yeah. I want it to stay that way because I don't want it to take on all the negatives of men's no, football. No, that's a good point. Yeah. Mike, before you know, doing sport where well, you've done yeah. it, you did other types of journalism, sure. you know, and mm. in Northern Ireland during mm. the trouble and mm. Libya during the bombing and mm. doing mm. some dangerous yeah. frontline stuff. Yeah. Do, you, do you prefer doing the sport to doing that? Well, <laughs> each has got its merits. I used to say about sport, right, and I had a lot of conversations with the guys who we brought on to talk sport, who were match reporters. Yeah. It's not that challenging to sit in a press box for 90 minutes or two hours and report on men kicking a football around. And, and, and I was able to say that because none of the guys I was talking to had actually been in the Al Kabir Hotel in Tripoli when the US Air Force bombed it and smashed the place to bits and you were literally crawling out of the rubble, you know. Yeah. Which is not a very nice thing to be doing at the time. But you look back on it and you think, wow, what an experience. Whether, you know, well, I, I think every football match is basically the same, if you, if you see what I mean. You know, it, mm. it, it starts mm. at, at one time, it ends 90 minutes later and, the, and there's yeah. a result. So doing non-football, and I've done World Cups and European Championships, yep. you know, South Africa and Germany and all that kind of stuff. Doing non-football is much less predictable. And I think it's the <coughs> lack of predictability in all our lives. And you've been in politics all yeah. your life. That's one of the most unpredictable professions yeah. of all. Yeah. I think that's what keeps no, you I going. I get the point. Yeah. Now, part of your journalistic career, yeah. pre-sport, was one of the most extraordinary and, I suppose, now historic. Yeah. Tragic, but historic moments. Yeah. You were at PA. Yes. It was 1997. Yeah. It was the end of August. August 31. What happened? August 31, I was watching Match of the Day. In fact, that was August 30, because it was Saturday night. Right. And uh, Match of the Day was coming to an end, and I got a call from the office. I was the executive editor of the Press Association. And the first information I got was that Diana had been involved in a car crash in a tunnel in Paris. We already knew that Dodie Fide had sadly died. And the first report said that Diana had a broken collarbone, had been taken from the wreckage, was in hospital... But none of it was adding up to me because there was no official information. I went back into the office immediately. I was very lucky to have a correspondent with Robin Cook in Manila. Can you <clears> believe that? The Press Association, because it's the agency of record, Yes. Uh, the diplomatic correspondent was with Robin Cook. I didn't know, but I do now, that when a member of the royal family dies on foreign soil, the information goes between foreign minister to foreign minister. It does not go between prime minister to prime minister, and it does not go from royal family to royal family. The diplomatic way to do it is foreign minister to foreign My boy was with Robin Cook, the foreign minister. I managed to get hold of him in the early days of mobile phones and to get him to ring me. <clears throat> And I told him everything we knew and said, go back into that room where Robin Cook is. First indication was, he said, funny you should say that. I was on the plane with Robin Cook. We were just about to take off. And the plane was called back to the apron. Right. And Mr Cook was taken off the plane. Something had to be going on. After a few more checks and another hour and a few more pieces of the jigsaw, I decided we had enough information to release to the world at 4.41 in the morning Diana, Princess of Wales, has died. Extraordinary. 25-year anniversary coming up in a few days' time. Indeed, yeah.
Extraordinary. Yeah. Mike Parry, hell of a story. Well, you know, that's what we're here for, isn't it? That, 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 that's what our lives are all about. Hell of a career in journalism. Yeah, well, thank you very much indeed. Thank you for joining me. Thank you much for your time. Pleasure. Thank you. We have a little bit of time left for Barrage the Farage. What have you got for me tonight? John asks, the Tories have a huge majority. Will Liz Truss put a bill forward early in September to leave both aspects of the ECHR? John, you saw tonight she's not going to do it. She's going to rely on a British Bill of Rights, which would be of as much use as a chocolate teapot. Laura asks, jelly deals, pie and mash or both? Well... Laura, I have to confess, I do like pie and mash very much indeed, with liquor, obviously. Uh, jelly deals, I haven't eaten jelly deals for some time, but I have no problem with jelly deals whatsoever. Bobby asks, are Iranian drones a serious threat to Ukraine? Well, Bobby, is a bigger question there. Is Iran potentially a threat to world peace? This ridiculous deal that Obama and the European Union did the so-called nuclear non-proliferation agreement, which Iran was enriched by, broke at every opportunity. I believe Trump was right to break it. I believe Trump was right, actually, to side more with Saudi Arabia. We may not like the way they act, but I do think Iran is a serious threat, not just their drones to Ukraine, but a serious threat, if I'm being honest with you, to world peace. I am back with you tomorrow night at 7pm from this very chair.